welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake Nichols. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Hi, this is John Paul Colson. And I'm Mike Wang, and we're here today. We're honored to be with Phil Stieg, who we actually have on the phone. Most of you know who Phil Stieg is. He's the chair of neurosurgery at Cornell uh, School of Medicine in New York, the Wheel Cornell School of Medicine. And and we really wanted to get Phil on uh, because Phil actually has a podcast. It's very popular. We would uh, give you a shameless plug on it, which is called This Is Your Brain. And the audience is a little bit different maybe for more lay people than our podcast, but I know that I've listened to the, some episodes and it's fascinating and definitely have a look uh, or a listen to that because it's fascinating. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Mike, for having me. It's a great pleasure. Yeah, so we wanted to talk about a very, very important uh, problem that we are encountering and we hear about in the news all the time, which is about physician burnout and specifically neurosurgery burnout. And, uh, you know, I know that a lot of people don't have a lot of sympathy for us as neurosurgeons, but I think it's important because, you know, the health of who's taking care of you is not irrelevant. And maybe, Phil, you can start us out by telling us about the epidemiology of this problem and, and what's what, what its scope is now. Yeah. I, I, I want to start off with the epidemiology just by, by, by framing it and saying that it certainly seems to be a larger problem. But some of the concerns are that uh, there's basically uh, the increased prevalence may actually reflect upon the increased awareness uh, and accessibility to help. And that may play a role in, uh, in the, the numbers that I'm going to report. In addition to that, the questionnaire forms don't necessarily reflect what we would think of as being burnout. For example, an individual might say that they've been tired on the job once, and that would classify them as potentially being at risk for burnout. That being said, you know, there have been several surveys done within neurosurgery, both amongst residents uh, 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 and, uh, and neurosurgical attendings. In residents, the, the prevalence of burnout is, is pretty good. It's 36.5%, and it's actually lower um, uh, uh, than in any other, uh, in any other uh, surgical subspecialty or medical subspecialty. So I, I think we should feel, feel good about that. The, uh, as I said, the prevalence was 36.5%. The, uh, it's independent of gender, age, uh, or postgraduate year. Uh, it actually is lower than uh, in other surgical residents, where it's 60%. Early career MDs, where it's 51%. And, and practicing MDs, where it's 53%. So I think <clears throat> residents uh, are, are kind of getting it. There are ways that we can, uh, and, and, I, and I don't want to go into a long foray here, so you know, tell me, Yeah, so, so since we now have a sense of the landscape 
that we're going to be navigating in this conversation, both in your knowledge of the literature and just in your own experience as an academic neurosurgeon yourself, a trainer of uh, rising neurosurgeons, what, what things have you identified as uh, causative factors for burnout in neurosurgeons? I'd say a lot of that sounds like intern year. So clearly, um, there's some inborn resilience to the people we're selecting to train in this field, or some kind of coping mechanism or strategy built into the training program. Interestingly enough, yeah. Interestingly enough, if if you look at the suicide rate, which is the worst outcome of burnout, that's been relatively stable. It's a little bit sinusoidal, but it's fluctuating around the mean. Uh, and interestingly also is that it's distributed pretty equally amongst all of the different subspecialties. Uh, I, I think that we have all become aware of this, uh, so much more that a lot of us, uh, that are training residents have become more sensitive to mechanisms for prevention. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Phil, I read the Wall Street Journal and it seems like there are all these articles and letters about the impact of the electronic health record or EMR, right? I mean, I can tell you I hate it, but um, do you think there's been an impact of that? For those of us that go back to before the electronic medical record, I remember hating standing in line to get lab values and finding the slip of paper missing in the lab. I remember hating trying to find the hard copy of the MRI scan on the night before surgery. Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> I think that the message, yes, it does create stress and a lot of work is falling onto the physicians uh, that could be handled by other individuals. That being said, I think that we in neurosurgery are being very effective about hiring uh, advanced practice pr- uh, practitioners, uh, nurses, and MAs that can do a lot of the things that the electronic medical record is requiring, such as the e-competency stuff with smoking, medication, um, uh, reconciliation, uh, and all those sorts of things. So, yes, it's a stressor. I do think that it's a work in progress as institutions start to grapple with implementing the various electronic medical records that are out there. Yeah, sometimes I feel like that rat in a psych experiment with the cocaine, it's tapping that little lever and just like <laughs> clicking boxes all day long. I don't know when clicking sometimes. It's like, you know, it gets a little crazy. Yeah. The other, the other thing that I think that is, is interesting is are we, are, you know, are we setting ourselves up for a little bit of failure? Because every institution, every program is emphasizing their sensitivity to uh, wellness and they're setting up centers and programs to help treat wellness, which uh, promotes the work-life balance. And then we put our residents out there to work and when they find out that, you know, the, the, there are these stressors and 
other approach is the Navy SEAL approach, which I'm not advocating. We don't need to throw our residents into ice cold water for an hour. <laughs> but certainly telling them that life is hard, life is full of stressors, and certainly neurosurgical training is full of stressors, and having that dialogue about how to tr- how to deal with it. That's, a, that's what I find with my residents to be much more effective. So, so give us an example. Like, I mean, I think that, you know, everybody knows of a, a physician that had problems because of burnout. Like, like you've, you've seen this before. Share with us a story that sort of identifies, like a case study, right, of the problem yeah, that yeah. we're facing. No, I, uh, an example would be a, 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 a faculty member that I hired who, you know, I hired him fresh out of residency and he came out of a tough residency. And uh, he had personal life issues uh, going on as well. And he was really having a hard time. And so I started meeting with him, uh, having a dialogue, and uh, saw a little bit of improvement, but certainly not enough of improvement in terms of his surgical skills were, were, were excellent, but you know, the, the behavior stuff was just you know, problematic that you know, people would want to write him up. So I did what's called a 360, you know, where you have him interviewed by people above him, equal to him, and lower, lower than he in terms of the totem pole, so that he could get some group input in terms of what his behaviors resulted in. And that provided him with some insight, and uh, the uh, the person who did the 360 provided him with some coaching, and then I've kind of continued with that coaching, and uh, you know, the, the, the the individual is much more content with his life, his career focus is there, uh, and I, you know, I think that I avoided the situation of somebody just saying, "I'm done with it. I'm going to go on. I, I can't handle all of this stress anymore." That's pretty labor intensive. How did you did you get special training on what to do, or you just know how to do it as a father? I mean, what do you, what do you do with that? Well, uh, the labor intensive part is getting the three hundred and sixty, which I you know, I don't do. You know, that's done by a professional. And what I there are two types of three hundred and sixties, meaning that you can some people do it with a, a survey where everybody fills out questions about the individual. I don't like that form. I like it better where the individual goes and meets with the individuals because you can read the body language. Not everybody wants to be completely honest. And then you get that report and, and, and the report kind of helps guide you. Uh, uh, I guess you have to have the kind of personality that likes to be uh, uh, reflective and, and enabling. I, you know, uh, at one point in my life, I did think about becoming a psychiatrist, so I guess I'm uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit interested in doing some kind of the, doing some of this, but I, uh, listen, I, uh, unfortunately, you know, becoming a chairman of a department nowadays is is really you know equally as much about being an excellent neurosurgeon it is, as it is about having an high emotional IQ hmm. and dealing with a lot of different personality sorts. I've heard of a chairman in neurosurgery who actually hired a life coach uh, for his department and initially, I, if I understand correctly, it was met with some skepticism, but eventually being very productive. Have you ever considered anything like that, or you feel like you can do the coaching yourself? At, at this point, I'd like to limit the cost. I can't imagine that that would be cheap. So the answer is, I think that it depends on the magnitude of the problem. You know, if you have a bunch of people that are really dissatisfied with the environment, and, and again, it's not only the neurosurgery department, it's the hospital, it's the medical school, uh, each one of these institutions have their own silos of problems, and then they, and then the politics that goes on amongst or, or, or between them. And I 
think that the other thing we have to do is we have to remind each one of the residents and faculty members that they took on a responsibility. They have a responsibility, and they have license to to help themselves. Um, uh, the, the, one of the problems that we see and that I was talking about with Richard Friedman, one of our psychiatrists here who runs the student health, is the you know the helicopter parent uh, that we see that just teaches their child that everything in life should be positive and everything should be immediately happy to the extent that some parents are going and buying their kids into the best schools they can. That's the, the worst case example. And that's probably not the healthiest way. I think that we all need to understand that every component of life, even though the pleasure, even the pleasurable components have some downside to it and you have to work at it. There are some stressors. And I think we're losing that. Uh, certainly, you know, it's all gone to pass fail because we don't want students to, to stress over their grades. I mean, all of the things that we've done to try to make life easy, or not necessarily easy, but less stressful, doesn't face doesn't recognize the fact that stress exists in the world, and we have to develop uh, better mechanisms for dealing with it. And Richard's on your podcast, right? On this is your brain, right? Yeah, yeah. I just, as a matter of fact, I just interviewed him yesterday on the concept of, of, of burnout. He had written a, a piece uh, about it in the New York Times, and one of the concerns is the World Health Organization has now made burnout a syndrome, and we're concerned that that it's it, it, it's medicalizing it. I'm, this, I'm not trying to deny the existence of burnout. Uh, that is certainly not the case, but I think that we have to diversify the way we're approaching it. We have to do a better job of preparing people for the stressors that they're going to have, meaning when we're training residents, I think we have to give them, we have to have a dialogue a, a, about it. We need to get them in the operating room early. We need to have them or give them a predictable schedule in their life and teach them how to treat everybody within the group with common sense and fairness rather than, you know, Mike, if you make me mad, I fire off an email and CC every hospital administrator so it blows <laughs> up with this huge problem, you know. Uh, you have to have a, a zero tolerance for uh, for harassment and, and hostility in your department, and then there just has to be this 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 clear set of expectations, you know, uh, for what is going to be demanded of them, and you have to give them the tools to meet those expectations, such as surgical labs, journal clubs, resident teaching, uh, rounds with the attendings, so they kind of get to know the attendings and see how they think and feel and how they've gone through. Uh, stressors. You know, just this morning I rounded with my residents, and you know, the afterwards we spent a half hour talking about what it means to be a neurosurgeon. So, Doctor Stieg, um, as someone who actually studied psychology myself, drawing on our shared interest, we covered a lot of great external means for handling burnout in neurosurgeons and neurosurgeons in training. How, um, from your position. Uh, within the system, you can set them up for success and help them when they're struggling. What advice could you offer residents or even attendings on an internal level for when, despite the best efforts of their system, of their program, they're feeling some of these tendencies and, and kind of shifting towards burnout? Right. Uh, having gone through that uh, most recently with a resident, but also with a, a, a neurology attending here that I was trying to help, uh, number one, the resident, hopefully the resident isn't so depressed that they don't recognize the fact that they're, you know, 
other where they feel that they've, they've crossed the, the, the dividing line is they need to know that there's help. They need to know who within their uh, institution they can go to, who within their department. And that I, I, I think that we've done a better job of communicating that it's acceptable to feel this way. You know, I mean, there used to be this, 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 this terrible feeling of guilt that, you know, maybe I have a psychological problem. You know, I, I think we have to demystify that. The brain is like any other organ and it can fail. And if you overstress it, you don't get any sleep. Your cortisol levels are high. You're not getting any REM. And there's other things going on. You got a faculty member picking on you. You're not getting along with your girlfriend. You haven't any time for exercise and you're eating poorly. I mean, that's a pretty miserable life that uh, uh, we have to help you get back to a better work-life balance. So they got to know there's help. And I think that we in, in practices and we in departments need to make that uh, very clear to all the people that work in the department. Great. Well, Dr. Sieg, this was a very informative discussion. Again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much.